A dark cloud has lingered over the legacy of one of the 20th century's preeminent thinkers. Martin Heidegger was arguably the most influential philosopher of the century. Indeed, his work remains hugely influential to this day in academia and beyond. Martin Heidegger was also a Nazi. Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Danny Postel, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Recent years have seen the dramatic rise of right-wing authoritarian populist movements and parties across the world, including inside the democracies of Europe and North America. While many of these currents compete in elections, and sometimes win, it's become increasingly clear that their authoritarian agendas have put them on a collision course with democracy itself, even while they operate largely within democratic frameworks. Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party in Hungary perhaps most embody this dynamic, but it's playing out in multiple countries as reflected in a term like Orbanization, as in the much discussed Orbanization of the Republican Party in the United States. This authoritarian populist turn has an important intellectual genealogy. The key thinkers of the New Right, known as the Nouvelle Droite in France, the Neue Rechte in Germany, the so-called alt-right in the US also figures in this constellation, had been building the conceptual scaffolding for this project for decades. And it turns out that one of the key influences on several of those New Right thinkers was Martin Heidegger. Our guest on this episode, Richard Wolin, has a new book, Heidegger in Ruins, Between Philosophy and Ideology, in which, among other things, he traces this genealogy and illuminates the nature of Heidegger's influence on the new right. Richard Wolin's relationship to these questions runs very deep. In the early 1990s, revelations about the extent of the German philosopher's Nazism and his efforts to conceal this chapter sparked a spirited debate that came to be known as the Heidegger Wars, which centered on whether there was a connection between Heidegger's political commitments and his philosophy. Heidegger's defenders insisted on a wall of separation between the two spheres. The critics argued that such a wall was untenable. Wolin was a key figure in those wars. His books, The Politics of Being, The Political Thought of Martin Heidegger, and the Heidegger controversy, a critical reader, were at the center of the firestorm. The intellectual historian Martin Jay puts it succinctly. For three decades, Richard Wolin has battled strong headwinds to demonstrate the links between Heidegger's vile politics and his sublime philosophy. Wolin's latest effort shows that the winds have shifted and the mighty fortress built by Heidegger and his defenders has been blown away. Richard Wolin is Distinguished Professor of History, Political Science, and Comparative Literature at the City University of New York, or CUNY Graduate Center. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Danny, for your kind invitation to speak with you today. Well, let's start, Richard, with the chapter of your book that you evocatively title From Beyond the Grave, in which you examine Heidegger's influence on contemporary far-right thinkers and even political parties. You write, the new right on both sides of the Atlantic has made copious use of Heidegger's thought to advance its retrograde ethno-nationalist 
political agenda. In the course of the chapter, you go into various thinkers from France, Germany, Russia, and beyond, whose debt to Heidegger runs quite deep. Before we get into some of the specific cases, tell us broadly, if you could, what is the, the basic resonance of Heidegger's ideas for these far-right thinkers as a whole? Yes. Uh, Heidegger was an arch-critic of Western civilization. And along with that goes, of course, the heritage of the Enlightenment, liberal democracy. And at the time he was writing in the 1920s, prior to the advent of Hitler's dictatorship, his thought was implicitly directed against the liberal consensus, the democratic consensus of the Weimar Republic. In this respect, he shares commonalities with kindred spirits who are also being received and popularized by the far right uh, in Europe, North America, etc. today, namely Carl Schmitt, Ernst Junger, uh, Oswald Spengler, etc. The, they're, they're known as the conservative revolutionaries. So, you know, it, it's really not a stretch uh, to begin with to see why Heidegger's rejection of enlightenment, individualism, reason, etc. Uh, much of this is inherited from Nietzsche or a certain political or metapolitical, let's say, reading of Nietzsche, uh, which was very uh, widespread among German right-wing intellectuals during the 1920s. So proceeding from this basis, uh, and as, as you could tell by my chapter, which uh, it surprised me, uh, namely the extent to which Heidegger, who's on the one hand, his ideas, uh, as you've insinuated, from the Martin Jay quote are, are very difficult. The entry level is demanding. Nevertheless, there's a popularized version of his theories that's extremely widespread today among uh, far-right intellectuals. And it's not just high-flying intellectuals, as I tried to explain in the book. Uh, it it uh, reaches and, and affects uh, prominent think tanks in France, Germany, Austria and elsewhere that are in league with uh, authoritarian populist political parties today in, in Europe and uh, even uh, during the Trump years. Uh, and we'll see in a couple of years if the Trump years are, are over <laughs> or they rebegin uh, and in, in North America as well. Right. You talk about these conservative revolutionaries, this cohort of thinkers in the interwar years in Europe to which Heidegger belonged. Let's, let's drill down into that for a moment. What would be the difference between the so-called conservative revolutionaries and traditional conservatives or mainstream established conservatives? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. In addition, the very, as one can see, uh, lexically, the very term conservative revolutionary is a contradiction in terms. How can one be both a conservative and a revolutionary? This, this is a very important question to answer because once the German monarchy, uh, led by uh, Wilhelm II in World War I, 
was uh, cashiered in the course of the Versailles Treaty in the settlement in 1919, one might say that traditional German conservatism that aims to conserve or preserve uh, past forms of political authority based on the monarchy uh, and traditional powers in Germany, such as the Prussian Junkers who sapped the army, et cetera, uh, German, the German right underwent a uh, reconfiguration. And th this is an incredibly important move in 20th century uh, political, political thought, political theory, and politics itself. They decided that they needed to take a page from the uh, voc lex vocabulary uh, or lexicon of the political left. Namely, they needed to adopt the precepts of revolution going back to the Jacobins in the 1790s in France and apply them, use them to their own advantage and apply them to current political circumstances. And, and uh, for the most part during the 1920s in Germany, the conservative revolutionaries were an intellectual movement and a movement of an intellectual elite. Uh, but but they, they interestingly also tried to take credit for the rather anti-intellectual uh, National Socialists once they seized political power in January 1933. So let's talk about how the specific conservative revolutionary thought of Martin Heidegger has influenced some of the new right thinkers and writers you talk about in this chapter. Let's, let's start with France, where you have the writer Alain de Benoit, who you call the eminence gris of the European new right, and um, someone he worked closely with over several decades, Dominique Venner, a founder of the far-right racist group uh, Europe Action, who committed suicide spectacularly in front of 1,500 worshipers at the Notre Dame Cathedral in 2013. Yeah, this is very important because there was a German precursor of the French New Right who was the German right-wing writer and militarist Ernst Junger's secretary. The, the, the figure's name is Armin Moller, M-O-H-L-E-R, who along with Hélène de Bonnois, helped conceive the program of the Nouvelle Droite or, or New Right in Europe during the 1960s. And, and uh, Muller wrote a book that's actually recently been translated to English on the conservative revolution. Uh, and, and there are numerous people who believe that Muller basically invented the idea, even though the concept was coined in the 1920s. The whole program uh, challenge of far-right politics and thought following World War II was how does one rehabilitate, uh, make acceptable once again, ideas that had been thoroughly discredited by the, the carnage uh, and, and genocide of World War II. And their, their modus operandi or their uh, démarche was to separate the so-called conservative revolutionaries, the figures we've been talking about, Heidegger, Schmidt, uh, Ernst Jünger, uh, Oswald uh, Spengler, from Nazism. Okay, the, the Nazis were bad. Uh, they went too far with the Jewish thing, right? <laughs> no, this is what you. This is actually what you read among neo-fascists. 
but the conservative revolutionaries, now you can get uh, a more exalted vocabulary, a more intellectually respectable vocabulary. And when one uh, utilizes, appropriates Heidegger's philosophy for these ends, along with the other figures I mentioned, one has the quote unquote advantage of someone, uh, a figure whose philosophy is often deemed to be the most significant breakthrough in, in phenomenology, in uh, you know, philosophy of mind, epistemology in the 20th century, the most significant philosopher, according to some of the 20th century. And there comes, a, a, of course, a lot of intellectual prestige and cachet and, and one can, can uh, proceed from there to mask the, uh, vile, as Martin Jay said in the, the remarks he quoted, the, the rather vile politics that go along with it. So there, there's a, a, an important strategic aspect to the uh, reception of the conservative revolutionary thinkers, including Heidegger, in the post-war period. That's been, that's been the project since the 1960s, since the formulation uh, of, one might say, the French think tank that Alain de Bonnois uh, led. Uh, it's, the acronym is GRES for Greece, yes. Now, in the German case, um, you focus on Mark Jungen, the deputy speaker of the far-right political party Alternative for Germany, or the AFD. And, and he's actually a member of the Bundestag, the German parliament, um, today. You also talk about Bjorn Hucke, a leader of the AFD's extreme Der Flügel faction, which the German government recently declared a, a right-wing extremist organization. One of the things that I learned from your chapter that intrigued me was that Mark Jungen did a PhD in philosophy under the supervision of Peter Sloterdijk, who is one of Germany's most influential philosophers and himself very influenced by Heidegger. So the Heidegger connections are all over this. These are not just sort of armchair intellectuals. These are people who have seats in the German parliament who are actually involved in political organizing. That's right. So the uh, lineage or the connections are uh, much, much thicker and, uh, you know, much more significant that would meet the eye. It's not just a question if one, you know, looks at the details, uh, armchair philosophers, and university professors, uh, reading groups, etc. There are specific think tanks located in uh, Saxony, in Germany, and a similar think tank in, in Vienna, Bavaria, that uh, part of their project is to uh, represent Heidegger's thought and its political value. And as you can see, yes, the case of Mark Jungen, who is known as the, uh, in German you say, Partaphilosoph, that's the word they use, the party philosopher of the alternative for Germany, uh, which really isn't much of an alternative considering its ties to uh, the, the conservative revolutionaries uh, going back to the 20s and other far-right uh, parties and organizations. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's quite uh, an, an uh, evolution in uh, the rather traditional thinking of the German right in the post-war per period after the discrediting of, of Nazism. Uh, but, but it's part of this plan, just the German context has uh, a specificity, namely 
they're interested in relativizing. This has been true since the so-called historians debate of the 1980s in which Habermas was involved. One of the key objectives is to relativize the Nazi past to remove this opprobrium, veil of opprobrium from German history. And once their, their objective is once this opprobrium is removed, then Germany can uh, represent itself as a quote unquote normal nation. Uh, and of course this frees their hand <laughs> to uh, reassume authoritarian political forms uh, and ideas as you can see with the AFD and its uh, embrace of the folk uh, idea and the, the hostility vis-a-vis -vis immigration and foreigners uh, in, a, in a modality that's very reminiscent of uh, 1930s racism throughout Europe. So this is, uh, and, and for four years, this AFD was the official, uh, it's, it's unimaginable. Uh, one kind of goes back and, and imagines the trajectory of the Federal Republic of Germany. For four years, the AFD is the official opposition party in the uh, Bundestag of the German parliament. Uh, and uh, they're, they're still quite prominent. Now, you say that among Heidegger's New Right acolytes, the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin occupies something of a unique place, in part because he's written the most of all of these thinkers we've discussed. He has written the most directly about Heidegger, multiple books. And he's also professed an explicit commitment to fascism. As you point out, many of the other New Right thinkers sort of, you know, keep their distance from it or do this dance in which they disavow fascism proper. But Dugan didn't. He quite openly embraces it, although he's attenuated the fascism talk in more recent years. Um, he is a belligerent advocate of Russian imperial conquest, what he calls neo-Eurasianism. And after Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, Dugan was dubbed Putin's brain, although the extent of his influence on Putin is debated, but there's no question that he's a leading intellectual figure, not only amongst Russian ultranationalists, but across Europe. So tell us about the case of Alexander Dugan and his Heideggerianism. Yes, Dugan was extremely influential during the late 90s with uh, a primer of geopolitics. He was a lecturer at the Academy of the Russian General Staff, and as one might recall, there was a lot of chaos in Russia during the 90s as the Soviet Union unraveled and collapsed and the Russian Confederation uh, suffered uh, from its own standpoint, these movements of independence of, of former uh, of nations that had been attached to the Soviet Union or under Soviet hegemony. And there was always a search on the part of the Russian right, especially among the military, for a new ideology that could supplant communism. And Dugan's interest in fascism goes back to the early 1980s when he was a university student and ended up translating uh, you know, several right-wing thinkers uh, who, who uh, otherwise in, in Russia were relatively unknown. And Dugan these days, for obvious strategic reasons, he wants to downplay his uh, uh, discussions of fascism in the, the 
1990s. And one, one has to imagine that uh, it seem, might seem peculiar that he would have recourse to, to this lineage. But if uh, one's growing up uh, in the 1980s under a, a fairly uh, moribund and, and octogenarian-led Soviet Union, uh, it seemed for a certain contingent of, of intellectuals, quite marginal at the time, that fascism provided the best arguments against communism. So this accounts for uh, Dugan's fascination with his lineage. And the, the, the more he received visibility in the, the 2000s with this doctrine of neo-Eurasianism, neo in the 90s, he co-founded a, a national Bolshevik party, which was, uh, in, during the 20s, a group of German, essentially conservative revolutionaries, Jünger was affiliated with this movement, that viewed com commonalities between uh, authoritarian commonalities between Russia, Soviet Union at the time, uh, Bolshevism, and uh, the German right as very important. So uh, Dugan, as you correctly observe, has attempted to downplay uh, many of his uh, discussions of fascism in the 1990s uh, for the sake of uh, his, his move toward geopolitics or Eurasianism to uh, claim that that uh, you know, Russia should be the hegemon. This is going back to Carl Schmitt's notion of uh, Grossraum uh, or large space uh, determinations of uh, geopolitical domination or hegemony, a, a move away from international law and international treaties and international resolution of disputes to claims that are in fact very dangerous, regional hegemony by the, the uh, most powerful uh, state or, or political authority in the region. And uh, there, were, there were similar arguments that Carl Schmitt made on behalf of uh, Japan in the East and, and Nazi Germany in uh, Central Europe in the late 1930s and 1940s. Richard, I want to take a step back and ask about how this whole discussion of Heidegger's influence on the new right how does this figure into your larger argument in the book about Heidegger's legacy? The winds have shifted in the debate, and that's largely because of the 2014 publication of Heidegger's Black Notebooks. What did that previously unpublished text reveal about Heidegger and his politics? Yeah, that's quite important because now we have a lot more uh, data uh, and information at our disposal about Heidegger's uh, thought processes and, and the nature of his reflections on the relationship between politics and philosophy in the 1930s. And what we find in the Black Notebooks, for example, as Heidegger's defenders have pointed out, are many specific criticisms of the, the trajectory of National Socialism on the one hand. And on the other hand, Heidegger's continued hope that uh, national socialism would undergo a course correction and ultimately provide some kind of, uh, he used these uh, eschatological terms, redemption, salvation, et cetera, which was tied to his understanding of the history of being in the 1930s, that the only prospect for, the, for redemption 
from the decadence of Western civilization and the triumph of European nihilism, to use a Nietzschean figure, would be, uh, as he called it, uh, Deutschtum or Germanus, that Germany as the, the master of, of Central Europe, Mitteleuropa, they say, uh, is the only hope for saving Europe from the abyss of technology and nihilism, et cetera. And, and what's quite striking and disappointing in Heidegger's case is that he never underwent a genuine learning process to tie the catastrophe of uh, the Third Reich and Hitler's rule for 12 years from 1933 to 1945 and the tens of millions of deaths that resulted from uh, Nazi militarism. He never made the link between the ideology of, of Nazism on the one hand and the European catastrophe that, that followed from it. He, he blamed the West, he blamed technology. The Holocaust was a product purely and simply of technology. It had nothing to do in his view with the German ideology, et cetera. So uh, many of the reflections that uh, he articulated in the black notebooks, even after the end of the war, he blamed the allies, for example, during the occupation of Germany for perpetrating crimes that were much worse than anything the Nazis had committed. He even observed at one point that the, the occupation of Germany and the process of re-education that the Allies undertook was a plot to prevent his own philosophy from, from blossoming and from reaching a German public. So some of these uh, observations and reflections obviously are of an, of an occasional uh, off the cuff, off, offhand, let's say, nature. Uh, you know, their philosophical, ultimate philosophical import is, is dubious. Uh, at the same time, one realizes quite clearly the parochialism of his worldview, view, worldview and the uh, parochialism in terms of he tended to see world history and contemporary politics exclusively from a, let's say, pan-German perspective, which has been a, a, a debility of German cultural nationalism, uh, not in a monolithic way, but ever since the early 19th century and the uh, wars of liberation, as they're called against Napoleon, uh, et cetera. It's been a feature, perhaps not the dominant tendency, uh, but, but in Heidegger, uh, he, he never extricated himself from the narrow-mindedness and deformations, one might say, of, of this uh, view of the world. Getting back to the question of the new right, what would you say to those who might push back and say or ask if responsibility for these nefarious political agendas of the new right you know, can they really be laid at Heidegger's doorstep? I mean, he died in 1976 and isn't alive to defend himself. You know, the ideas of all kinds of thinkers have been put to pernicious ends, especially after their death. There are left Heideggerians. There have even been attempts to synthesize Heidegger and Marx. So aren't there different ways to interpret Heidegger's ideas beyond just the new right? 
Yeah, I think this is a, a fair question and a good question. And let me uh, clarify that uh, you know, I, re I really don't make an attempt to attribute any kind of intellectual responsibility for the contemporary new right to Heidegger per se. There's a plurality, uh, as I tried to indicate earlier, of conservative revolutionary thinkers who have who've informed this worldview and play, play a key role uh, in a, a global setting at present. But I think it's important uh, to acknowledge the fact that uh, one can make these uh, connections. And the, the many ideological proponents of the new right have uh, between uh, aspects of Heidegger's thinking and the attempt today to implant some form of authoritarian national populism and perhaps something even worse, something that, that uh, politically does resemble historical fascism in a contemporary context, in the context of 21st century uh, politics. So rather than, than sweep such considerations under the rug, I mean, for example, just to, to you know, bring this uh, aspect of Heidegger's influence and reception to you know, uh, uh, close. Uh, Heidegger's some of Heidegger's defenders claim that this isn't, like this happened with Nietzsche, for example, with the reception, Nietzsche reception by the Nazis. Uh, Nietzsche's defenders have always claimed, and of course they, they have a point that this is uh, uh, an inauthentic and misreading of Nietzsche. Well, but, but why are they reading Nietzsche and why do they try to make these uh, rapprochements with Nietzsche's thought? So it's a question of, of you know, uh, both and rather than either or, but, but in Heidegger's case too, why, why go to Heidegger? Why rely on Heidegger? Which only says that there are aspects of Heidegger's thought that are serviceable for these uh, illiberal and anti-democratic political ends. And, and if, if it's okay, I'll just move on to this other important issue you raised of the phenomenon of left Heideggerianism. And uh, you kind Please. of caught me here. You're, you're right that uh, in the case of Marcuse, uh, I, I, John Abramite and I added to this anthology uh, 12 years ago or so on, called Heideggerian Marxism. But uh, Marcuse is one case and, and he, quickly gave up on this uh, paradigm uh, and, and wrote quite critically about uh, Heidegger's, the, the political implications of Heidegger's thought, the ideological implications during the early 1930s uh, when things became clearer, uh, he, he began to, uh, so to speak, put two and two together and could, could in, in retrospect, see the, the connections that were significant. But this issue of left Heideggerianism, I think is important, uh, especially uh, in terms of uh, Derrida's influence and the, the influence of his, uh, uh, some of his followers, such as Philippe uh, Lacoulabat and Jean-Luc Nancy, et cetera, whose uh, thinking has been, been quite influential in uh, comparative literature circles, and uh, you know, uh, certain uh, aspects of, of philosophy. This is, one can, can legitimately question, I think, you mentioned Foucault as well, uh, 
whether or not this approach to modernity uh, and, and democracy is genuinely of the left. And, and this is a, a complicated issue, but let me just point out to one aspect of their thinking that uh, one, one needs to examine more closely to come to some kind of uh, you know, conclusion about uh, the, the va political valences of their uh, philosophy and metapolitics. And that has to do with their acceptance of the, I would call it critique of civilization. That's a English translation of, a, of this German phrase, Zivilizationskritik. Uh, and this has to do with the, 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 tr the Nietzschean trope I mentioned earlier of European nihilism. And it manifests itself in Heidegger's Being in Time, this critique of Western civilization as the apogee of European nihilism it has no redemptive features. It must be destroyed in order to be reborn. One has a, a, a similar sweeping critique of liberalism, democracy, all these figures that I mentioned earlier on uh, in, in the hour of reason, individualism, et cetera. There was a great uh, you know, polemical indictment, especially after the Versailles Treaty and, and blaming the West for uh, Germany having lost its African colonies and, and being saddled with this republic. Of course, it was Germans who proclaimed the, the Weimar Republic in November 1918. This was nothing that was foisted on them per se. Be that as it may, so, so to get back to your, your question, one of my concerns is that the paradigm of quote unquote left Heideggerianism has accepted by relying on figures like Heidegger extensively, uh, Agamben too, you mentioned, Heidegger, uh, Carl Schmitt is also very prominent uh, among these thinkers. The whole, and Nietzsche, needless to say, is really the uh, kind of the, the, the guru for the, the conservative revolutionaries in the 20s, but also very much as one knows uh, in the case of uh, the so-called for French theory and left Heideggerianism. So I, I feel that the, the uh, ready acceptance of this paradigm of Nietzschean nihilism, this indictment of the West in so many aspects, it's not, a, to make a, a simple point, it's not an imminent critique. It's not a partial critique that attempts to preserve aspects of democracy and the enlightenment uh, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, you know, other aspects that uh, we should abandon uh, or criticize mercilessly. It's a, it's a total critique, a la Nietzsche. Of course, there are other aspects of Nietzsche that, that certainly one can appreciate. Uh, but, but this ideological aspect, uh, I, I fear has been continued and valued by the, the paradigm, if one can speak so uh, generally of left Heideggerianism. And uh, you know, there's a, a phrase in French political thinking uh, uh, that applied very much during the 30s when, when there were many uh, pol political figures on the left, uh, Mussolini back in, in the, the 1910s during World War I was the, the paradigm switching from the Socialist Party to forming after the war, the, Italian, the National Fascist Party in Italy. We know where, where that ended up. There was a similar phenomenon in the 30s where, where, where many figures uh, on the left in Europe 
decided that if they wanted to achieve socialism, attain the goals of socialism, they came to the same conclusion that Nietzsche came to in, in I'm sorry, that Mussolini came to in the during World War One. that if one really wanted to realize the goals of socialism, it had to be a national socialism, small n, small s, not international socialism. So this was, this, there were many European intellectuals who, uh, prominent figures too, who uh, followed the Mussolini path. And, and I would just ask uh, if under the cover of being quote unquote left Heideggerians, there isn't a good part of uh, right Heideggerianism that goes along with it. And I think many of the uh, defenders of this perspective have been a bit uh, naive and, and uh, not as straightforward as they might be concerning the problematic uh, ideological components of this standpoint or, or uh, perspective. I'd like to conclude by asking you about an essay you've written on the great replacement theory and its European origins that you published in August in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It also comes up in your book, in the chapter on Heidegger and the New Right, this obsession, this recurring motif of populations and, and migrants and belonging, and who belongs and who doesn't, and the fate of the white European population of the various countries in question. The great replacement theory has been popularized in all kinds of ways by the likes of Tucker Carlson and very much mainstreamed and normalized and sanitized. So take us back to the origins of this great replacement theory, Richard. One can really begin to trace the fears of uh, foreign inundation at the time of the Dreyfus Affair in France, where some of these phrases were first use of population replacement on the part of the anti-Dreyfusar. And at the time, it was, of course, used to anti-Semitism in, in France at the time was quite rife, uh, perhaps at the same level uh, it, it, it was at uh, in, in Germany at the time. So there was a fear that France, its, its national character was being transformed by immigrants from Eastern Europe who could never be authentically French. And this is the, uh, an interesting turning point in the history of European nationalism, where nationalism earlier on had been based, had been a civic nationalism, had been based on conceptions of citizenship and the rights of uh, birth or use solely it's called in, in international law, a turning point to ethnic nationalism, that being French had to do, it wasn't quite racial, but it had to do with attachment to, to soil and land and heritage and language. And one couldn't be really a naturalized citizen. This was a contradiction in terms, which is very much against the tradition of civic nationalism. And it, it, the, the, a similar mentality kicked in in the 1930s uh, during the, the crisis after the Great Depression, but also it was prominent during the era of decolonization uh, in conjunction with the Algerian War in France, which uh, ended in 1962 with Algerian independence, but also precipitated a virtual civil war within France among those who wanted to 
keep Algeria French and those who were in favor of an independent Algeria. It, it tore France in two and it and continues to be uh, a sore point in French politics and working through the, the, the torture and the level of crimes that the French military perpetrated in Algeria. At the time of decolonization, when many uh, you know, former uh, residents of, of the colonial uh, you know, nations began immigrating to France and to Europe, it was the new right who took up this cudgel and began using the, the phrase population replacement to, uh, in, in favor of the idea of a, a, an Aryan or white nationalist Europe, uh, a, a rigorously uh, anti-immigrant anti ideology that uh, was uh, quite widespread at the time. And, and of course, again, in, in recent years, as you indicate, uh, has been reborn in rather insidious ways. It's been reborn, and speaking of North Africa, it's on terrifying full display in Tunisia today, where the country's president, Kais Saeed, has unleashed a, a paroxysm of violence targeting black migrants, inspired by a local version of the Great Replacement Theory that he himself articulated in his speech. And, you know, the ironies abound because, of course, it's North Africans in Europe who are usually targeted as the invaders. But in this case, it's North Africans saying that sub-Saharan Black Africans are invading their lands. But without getting into the details of the Tunisian case, the point is that this, uh, two points. One is that political violence, as you say in the book, um, words have consequences. Ideas like the new rights have consequences in the real world. And secondly, this particular narrative, this conspiratorial fantasy of the Great Replacement is actually traveling. It's globalizing. It's spreading. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yes, this is interesting that you point out Saeed's use. I believe it began in a speech he gave in February, denouncing sub-Saharan Africans and migrants from places such as Nigeria uh, or West Africa, who have, in many cases, uh, taken up jobs that native Tunisians feel are beneath them. There's a parallel phenomenon in uh, Europe and North America as well, of course, in terms of the, the logics of migration. It's a maneuver or a chess move made out of desperation since there have been many protests against his authoritarian rule. It's a rather sad case. You know more about this than I do, Danny, since uh, you follow Middle Eastern politics quite closely. It's it's very sad since Tunisia was the one had been the one success story in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, and 19 months ago, uh, Said uh, transformed the constitution. In uh, so so, <laughs> what's what's especially uh, regrettable, of course, is that the politicians in North Africa, such as Syed, are imitating our mistakes, that is the mistakes that the West has made, uh, under, undergoing a type of organization to see if uh, this uh, ideological denigration of an immigrant population can 
serve as a and conspiracy theory can serve as a vehicle of, of unity uh, to get the Tunisian people to rally behind them. Of course, the uh, crimes perpetrated against sub-Saharan Africans have been fearful and you know, are reminiscent of the worst kinds of ethnic persecutions one can imagine that are going going on in the uh, world today. Uh, and it's, so one would hope that uh, politicians in the developing world might be learning other lessons from European politics and European political history, but the, the way ahead instead has been paved, it seems, by figures like Viktor Orban and others who are irresponsibly bandying about this conspiracy about population replacement, knowing, knowing all the while that, it, that it's a lie, it's a falsification, and it's, which, which makes it, uh, which bespeaks its ideological political function. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on The Lead. Thank you very much, Danny, for having me and enjoyed our conversation. This has been The Lead by New Lines Magazine. You can buy Richard Wolin's book, Heidegger in Ruins, at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Danny Postel. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. 